0: evening everyone. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, the Old Testament book of Zechariah. We'll read from chapter 12 to to begin with. The goal this evening is to get through chapters 12 and 13. Let's begin with just a portion of 12. out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples, when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every course with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and I will strike every horse of the peoples of blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day, I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in the woodpile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left. But Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, Jerusalem. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. This is the word of the living God, and we say, Thanks be to God." God. Please be seated. how wonderful is the name of Christ. I pray that we jo- won't just learn it for learning its sake, for, for head knowledge's sake, but I pray that these wonderful truths will have a salty effect in our lives. And that in turn, we will go out into the world and be salt, be light. We pray for Christ's sake, in his name. Amen. Claude Monet was a French painter. who he helped father... A style of painting called impressionism. Don't fact check me. Out. I looked this up. He's famous for drawing things in nature, bodies of water, flowers, gardens, and the like. The lady with the umbrella. That's Monet. Water lilies. That's Monet. And one interesting thing is that Monet would sometimes work on several paintings simultaneously. And along with that. He would create a series of paintings on a theme, and each painting was itself a work of art, but each picture was meant to be taken into consideration along with the rest of the pictures in the series. So he would not always complete one picture and then move on to the next. He would often work on one picture and then go to the next, and then go to the next, and then he would come back and he would add detail to this picture, add color here, add more elaboration, here. And his work of art, he may have five or six paintings that would all be part of a theme, and each painting, though a picture in and of itself, put together put forth a grand theme. And in a way I think that of Zechariah the prophet, if he were an artist I think it's fair to compare him to Monet. Zechariah paints pictures of salvation and they're sprinkled throughout this book. He begins a picture, but then he comes back to it later, perhaps a time or two, and he adds more detail. He introduces them, perhaps in the earlier part of the book, and he'll come back to them, adding more detail. And he paints several pictures, and through them all are major themes, perhaps the major theme is that God will build his kingdom, and you, believer, are to be encouraged that this is going to happen. So despite your circumstances, I think, Zechariah, to you, believer, to Israel at the time of the writing, I think this, in effect, is what he's saying. You must keep faith. You are to fight the good fight of faith. And if you wonder how, how might I keep the faith? The answer is to look to God's promises, to look to all of these pictures of salvation, some of them present, some of them to come in the future. So this is the book's aim. This is the prophet's aim. And these truths that we'll see, these are truths that we've seen for millennia that have helped the church, that have helped the state of Israel at this time. Perseverance, encouragement, waiting with patience. These are great themes that run through the book, and we'll see them once again in our text tonight. So one of these ideas is that God keeps a watch on the nations. We saw this. Really, in chapter 2, in chapter 2, there's an there's a army, there's an angel army, and many of these angels are on horseback, and they're surveying the earth, and they're watching particularly over Jerusalem. We'll see that added to tonight. More than just watching over his people, this book speaks about how God destroys the enemies of his people. That, too, will reappear tonight. Another idea is that call, God calls his wayward people to repentance. Chapter 1, the opening of the book, starts with this. If you go back and you look at that, the very first thing, God calls his people to repentance. We'll see that tonight. And along with that, we see multiple pictures of God's salvation. He forgives his people by giving them a the great high priest. This great high priest provides them clothes. And this great high priest will himself be the sacrifice. That's in chapter 3. Another picture we saw a few weeks ago. God rescues his people from the waterless pit that has echoes of Jacob and others. That picture, too, will be added to tonight. So let's, together, let's look at this text and consider some of these pictures that God puts forward. So tonight there are three headings. We'll look at three of these pictures of salvation. The first picture of salvation is this, God delivers his people from the hands of their enemies. The second, God provides repentance and forgiveness through the pierced one. And the third, those whom God forgives, God sanctifies. So heading one, God delivers his people from the hands of their enemies. So the text we just read this evening, chapter 12, verses 1 to 9, God grants what we may call an earthly salvation to his people, Israel and Judah. He protects them. Not just that, he destroys their enemies. Several notes about this. Notice, Israel is not going on the offensive in this passage. They're defending themselves. Keep that in mind. Note that it is God... Who is fighting for Israel? It is God all the way through. It is God who strikes every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. It is God who opens the eyes of the house of Judah. It is God as the primary actor all throughout this. Third thing, when was this when was this written? This is the question, this is a bit of a controversial one. There's two primary ways I think of Looking at this passage, when does it take place? I think this matters, because when it takes place is going to affect why this was written. So, was it written before Christ? Or was it written after Christ? That is, is it still to come? Is it sometime in the future yet? Romans 11 talks about many Jews coming to the faith in the last day. Is that what this is about? Perhaps a few Reformed folks even take that view. And that's an interesting view because Jerusalem and Judah are in view here. Often when we think of the church being in the Old Testament, which we Reformed folks typically do, we don't often think of ourselves as Judah or Jerusalem. But that's what takes place in this passage. I think it's the first option, actually. I think that this takes place before the coming of Christ, and here's why. Israel would be the birthplace of the Messiah. Why is God protecting his people Israel at this time? Well, the Messiah was to be born in Israel to fulfill all righteousness. He must appear in the town of Bethlehem. That's where he was to be born to fulfill the scriptures. Jesus, Messiah, must be circumcised. He must be taken to Jerusalem and presented in the temple. He had to grow in stature and wisdom in the town of Nazareth. For the scriptures say that he was to be called a Nazarene. And Jesus had to do his ministry in Israel too in order to fulfill the scripture. Jesus had to be baptized by John in the Jordan River and then wander in the desert for 40 days and so fulfill so succeed where Israel did not in their wanderings. Jesus, as this book says, must ride into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt, and then he must appear before the high priest during a mock trial, where he, would to be tr- where he was going to be tried, later torn, beaten, crucified, on a cross just outside of Jerusalem. So according to God's plan, Israel had to remain a state until at least the time of Christ. So for that reason, I think that our passage, chapter 12, verses 1 and 9, I think this takes place before Christ, and God is preserving his nation for these purposes that I just listed before you. Now, with that said, and I think when we look at God fighting enemies in the Old Testament, we can sort of superimpose that and bring that into the church. Are we supposed to be doing that? Are we supposed to be building a town for ourselves with walls all around? Is God going to fight on our behalf? And that's where I just want to make a bit of a caveat. That we are not under the same covenant as this people were. Their job, Israel's job, was to produce the Messiah. They were the soil in which the Messiah was going to be born. For that reason, I think God is preserving them. Scripture does say, New Testament, Jesus says, Jesus says this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone, think about this. Every time I read this, it just seems like that's too much, Jesus. He says this, everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. That's That's outlandish. But this is the confidence that we have in him. This is 1 John 5. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions we ask of him. So God answers our prayers. He says he's going to do it, and there's a bit of a, there's like a guarantee on there. The guarantee is that God will answer according to his will. So when does God answer prayer? That Matthew 7 passage that I read. What is the context there? I think it's the same context that's in here. God is building his kingdom. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's in that vein that he answers our prayers. And I think it's in the same vein that he is protecting Israel. God is building his kingdom. So therefore, he protects Israel So brothers and sisters this is for your encouragement in the faith really God's kingdom will come That may mean that God protects you God will see to it that his people Will have everything they need to build his kingdom And if that means That for the church's sake God must strike every horse With confusion and its rider with madness Then God will do it That's what it takes to build his kingdom. He will do it. I think that's the lesson that we should draw from this. So we need not worry about whether God can protect us or not. Of course he can do so. Of course he can do so. Last week, Pastor Ryan in the book of Daniel highlighted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They answered and they said to Nebuchadnezzar, they said, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Remember their boldness? When Nebuchadnezzar was saying he needed to bow down towards me, they said no. They said if that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. And that's the key. He is able to deliver us. And interestingly, they give this caveat. But if not, if he doesn't deliver us, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. That's our response. Why is Israel preserved? Because the Messiah is yet to come. That's why they're protecting. That's why God is protecting. Maybe more going on in that passage. There's not less. And I think this is a primary aim of verses 1 to 9. Moving on, our second heading is this. God provides repentance And forgiveness through the pierced one. God provides repentance and forgiveness through the pierced one. Verses 10 to 14. I'll read this. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me when they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. And grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning at had, had driven in the plain of Neged, Medikadiv. And the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves. The family of Shemai by itself, and their wives by themselves. All the families that remain, every family by itself. And their wives by themselves. In that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. So let's look closely at verse 10. God provides repentance and forgiveness. So we're really moving on to the second picture tonight. The second picture, this is just a picture of salvation. The salvation is to come. I will pour, this is future, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace. So notice this. It is God who is initiating this action. God is the one behind it. Second thing to notice. They will look on me. They will look. Interestingly, Pastor Ryan actually highlighted this this morning. This wasn't planned, but he he talked about what look means in the scripture. This morning sermon, Nebuchadnezzar looked to God and he came into his right senses. In the scriptures, that word look, it's a rich word. In the Gospel of John, John continues to, to link seeing truly with salvation. If you see Christ, you're saved. That is, if you see him truly. So those who look on me, Who's the me? I will pour on the house of David. It's God's spirit that's coming, and I will pour on me. Or they will they will they will look on me. So they're going to look on God, and God is going to be pierced. So God will be the one who is pierced, and they will mourn. For him. There is a result of this looking upon God, whom is pierced. They will mourn. Why will they mourn? Some will say that in context, that this mourning is really about Israel. They're, they're mourning because they've been idolaters. And they, they, like in the book of Hosea, remember? Hosea, they are, they are idolaters. And they are Whores. But God in the book of Hosea welcomes them, he comes to them. Here, the picture is that they are mourning because they have pierced God. Here, they are piercing Him in Hosea. They're adulterers, here, they are piercing Him themselves. Third note God is pierced. Fourth note is this the work of salvation begins with mourning and repentance. We covered that. Think about this, believer. It's God's kindness here. God is the initiator. He is the one. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And when they mourn, notice that God does not stop them from mourning. When someone comes under true conviction of sin, this can happen from time to time, where you will see it, When someone comes under true conviction of sin and they mourn and they are really, really upset, what is your temptation? Is it to console them to go over there and say, there, there, there? Don't you worry about it. God does not stop them from mourning. This mourning is a good thing for their seeing truly God doesn't stop the mourning. It's a good thing. It's a blessing. This looking upon him who's pierced is seen elsewhere in the scriptures and there's several ways that we can think about it ourselves as a believer and I want you to know this that everyone will look on the one who was pierced first example Thomas Thomas saw the piercing he saw it firsthand you and I don't see it firsthand at least yet and the scripture says this after eight days his disciples Jesus' disciples they were again inside Thomas had not yet seen them. And Jesus came, the doors being shut. And he stood in the midst and said, peace to you. And Jesus said to Thomas, remember, Thomas doubted him. He didn't believe that Jesus was living again. And Jesus says, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas' response, I think it's your response if you're in Christ. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord. And my God, that's the first response. Others, however, if they reject him, they will see this pierced man, but they will see him in terror. Every time in the scriptures when we see Christ coming back, it's a terrifying one. This from Matthew 24. Lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west. So also will the coming of the son of the man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. And immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. This is terrifying after terrifying after terrifying thing. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why do they mourn? Why are they mourning? Thomas says, my Lord and my God. These people mourn according to Revelation seven. He comes in the clouds and they see him. All the nations see him and they see him whom they pierced. They see the man who is pierced. So there's two ways. You're either going to look upon him in faith and be thankful for that piercing, or you're going to look upon him in terror. There's a story in the Old Testament that's very, very interesting. I I have uh, I have a friend Sort of an eccentric friend And he, he has some children now And eccentric people, I love it They always have interesting names for their children And he told me, this isn't so much of an eccentric name now But he's like, I want to name my son Phineas It's said, Phineas You're going to call him that, like the whole thing? It's like, yeah, yeah And I did not place this story But he told me the story He retold me this story Let me tell it to you And it is a good name, if any of you are Pregnant and expecting. When Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. All right, this is typical Israel stuff. They're whoring, they're, they're idolaters. And these invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel, in this story, bows down to false gods. And Israel yoked himself to Baal of Pur. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So they're being idolaters, the penalty is death. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And here's where Phinehas comes in. And behold... One of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the chamber, and he pierced both of them. So they're in the bedroom chamber. Perhaps they're in the middle of a particular act. And Phineas goes in, and he pierced both of them. The man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague of Israel was stopped. What's the penalty for idolatry? It's piercing. What do adulterers deserve? It's to be pierced through the belly. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel. What turns back God's wrath? Piercing. The piercing of a sinner. Idolaters deserve this sort of thing. So the question tonight, are you an idolater? What then will God do to you? What is the deserved Punishment. You must repent, you must call upon Christ, for though he was God, he was pierced for our transgressions. Look upon him as your substitute, lest you too be pierced by God. That's the penalty. Isaiah 53-5. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we have seen him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So there is a reward now coming up in our our text, but that is the basic reward basic idea, and this picture that Zechariah is painting, that's it. This is the picture of salvation. Is that though you deserve it, he peers, there's a substitute. Not only that, there's a reward waiting for those <coughs> who see this picture correctly. The reward is chapter 13, verse 1. There is your reward. For all of you, if you look upon Christ, a fountain is open. In that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. A fountain. I love this image. It's a wonderful image. Fountains are typically for drinking, but here it's not for that. It's for two things. Forgiveness of sins. You can think of the image of Jesus. If you drink from me, you will never be thirsty again. And it's for cleansing. That image is baptism. You're washed Secondly, fountains convey an image of plenty. The salvation offered is bountiful and more than enough. Fountains do not run out of water. They do not run out of resources if they're from God. Another reason this is wonderful. Fountains, there's just a, there's like a, I don't know how to say it. There's a freeness to fountains. There's a free offer of the gospel, actually Andy pointed this out a couple weeks ago. When you think of fountains, you just think of the free flowing water that comes out. We had a hose pipe out yesterday. The kids were playing in a pool and they had the summertime they had the hose out and this water just kind of, it just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. And it's an amazing toy, isn't it? Because it just doesn't stop. The bottle of water, you pour it out, it's over with. The hose, it just keeps going. And it's just bountiful. It just keeps going. And the trees are wet and the yard is wet and there's mud puddles. But there's a water bill. <laughs> there it is. That's what I was thinking of yesterday. Yeah, the water is just flowing and flowing and flowing. And I loved doing that when I was a kid. But now I'm thinking water man. And this is a contrast to the fountain of God. His water is free. He pays the price. We drink for free, and his well doesn't run dry. This is Jeremiah 2.13. Isaiah also We're called to come and drink freely. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you, who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. The fountain of God does not just forgive and cleanse. Verses 2 to 6, it takes idolatry away. This too is your reward. So verse 1, the result of this pierced one, of looking upon him appropriately, a fountain is open. And now that the fountain is open, what does the fountain do? Well, it takes away idolatry. Verse 2, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. It shall come to pass that if anyone still prophecies, then his father and mother begotten will say to him, You shall not live. Because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. So the coming of the fountain is the removal of idolatry. That's one of the gifts of the Christian life. Believe you, you're not, just, you're not just saved so that you can go to heaven. You're saved so that you may turn from idols and serve the living God. That's a true pleasure. Looking closely at this, there's also an idea here where the mother and the father are just really society at large. This, this society who looks upon the one who was pierced, they become a just society. They become a good society. So that even if your relative is doing a bad thing, you want them to stop. Even a mother and father will give them the penalty they deserve for idolatry. And what's the penalty they deserve for idolatry? Well, it's to thrust him through for false prophecy. Look there in verse 3. The mother and father thrust him through. That's the penalty for idolatry. In verses 4, 5, and 6, prophets become ashamed of their visions, further cleansing the land, move to heading three. Heading three is this. Those whom God forgives, God sanctifies. Those whom God forgives, God sanctifies. Verses seven to nine. This is poetry. Prophecy. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. few notes about that verse. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. So God is calling forth for his sword. Awake, O sword, and it's God's own shepherd that he strikes. And notice that the shepherd is his companion. Again, when we think of the second person of the Trinity, that's that's, that's Trinitarian language there. God's companion will be struck by the sword And when he is struck by the sword The sheep are scattered The New Testament picks up on this idea as well When Jesus is taken to trial All of his disciples just flee In fear One note the end of verse 7 It says I will turn my hand Against the little ones That I think is perhaps The most confusing translation In this chapter I will turn my hand Against them I, that, I just think that's that's not, not the best way to put it. It's confusing verse at first, and it seems like it's turning away the children, or really it should be the opposite. Against should be taken to mean like towards. The sheep are going to scatter, and I'm going to turn my hands towards them. And it shall come to pass in all the land. Two-thirds shall be cut off and die. One-third shall be left in. I will bring one third through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, This is my people, and each one will say, The Lord is my God. So, the the third picture of salvation here is that you're not just going to be saved, you're going to be sanctified, you're going to be taken through the fire. So salvation is, is it's not just being saved. It's not just being forgiven. You are made into spotless gold that belongs to the king of kings. You are made into the spotless bride of his son. You are brought into his family. Look at the end of the verse there. God will say, this is my people, and you will say, this is our God. Things that are wonderful are not always easy to describe. Therefore, they require lots of words if you really want to describe them well. So, in other words, rich things, you've got to take your time. And you have to use many, many images to convey their richest richness. And I think that's what Zechariah is doing in this latter part of the book chapter 14 there is a grand conclusion where all the nations come into this temple and that too is another image of our salvation Lord willing we'll get there in a few weeks from now let's pray together our Father our salvation in Christ is rich and though we've talked about these things there is a possibility that folks in here even in Christ will not see the richness of of their salvation. And I pray against that this evening. I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you give us eyes to see how great is our salvation. And may we, when we sing, truly sing. And when we pray, may we truly pray with awe and wonder and thankfulness. Work among us, use us as evangelists, For people who see the richness of their their salvation will be wonderful evangelists. Make us into those people in Christ's name.